A reading from the Gospel of Mark. As he was teaching, he said, Watch out for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes and to show off, they say long prayers. They will be judged most harshly. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. Hello. Hey. Thank you. Shout out to our tech team. Um, there's so much we couldn't do without our incredible um, and generous volunteers on the tech team. It is lovely to be with all of you this morning. This morning is so, so beautiful out. I feel like we have this perfect combination of like the falling leaves and all the color change and a little bit of blusteriness and the... Uh, the Christmas cups are out at Starbucks now, which is how we really know the season has changed, but it's somehow still like in the 50s. <laughs> so I feel like we're in a Hallmark movie, the very beginning of like a Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> this is a perfect November vibe in the Midwest. And November um, in the church is often stewardship season. Does anybody know what I mean by stewardship season? Does anybody get like chills of when I say stewardship season? <laughs> I do too, although maybe for different reasons. Um, it is the time when a lot of churches dedicate their messaging to talking about giving and generosity because that is the way that most churches are sustained is by people collectively coming together and throwing down. And we talk about that at some level every week um, because that's what it means to be a radical collective is to rely on one another for abundance and to build something that is more than the sum of our parts. So we talk about that a lot. But there are a lot of folks who are really reasonably uncomfortable talking about money and church. A lot of us have been shamed around money in church. There's a lot of guilt and expectation that we give beyond our means. There's a lot of pressure to perform a kind of generosity that may not feel very good. And we've seen a lot of really blatant hypocrisy and exploitation in the church in these enormously public ways. I'm talking about like the 700 Club. Does anybody know the 700 Club? Yeah, or... Um, 
just prosperity gospel churches in general, churches that promote this message that the way to earn God's favor and grace, the way to get blessings in your life is to give money specifically to the church in the name of God, specifically to their church, specifically to these churches that already have massive accumulations of wealth. The messaging is, God will bless you if only you send your money to me, (laughs) which is like a very convenient message for those people telling it, isn't it? And this is a way that funnels money, usually from poor and vulnerable people, to people who are already hoarding, have a lot, and have a lot of privilege in society to begin with. Now, prosperity gospel, this idea that you can earn God's blessing by giving money, is pretty toxic. It's pretty prominent, but it's pretty toxic. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is that it's very anti-biblical. In the gospel, or I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, right after the gospels, talking about um, the way the early church was formed, there is this story where the disciples, the apostles, are doing the work of spreading the gospel. They are, they are healing people. They are bringing people into faith. They're spreading this really radical message of, of collective, of a theology and economy of abundance, right? This is where we get like they held all things in common and there was no one who was in need because they threw it all in together. And while this was happening, somebody uh, perceived that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying out of hands, right? So there, someone is seeing, someone faithful, someone who's believing in this message, right? Who's coming into the fold, his name is Simon. He, he believes and he sees, ooh, y'all are just like giving out power. You're laying your hands on people and giving people the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he offered them money. He said, give me this authority too so that anyone whom, on whom I lay hands will receive the Holy Spirit. I'll pay you for it. And Peter responded to him, may your money be condemned to hell along with you because you believe that you could buy God's gift with money. Which I don't think is a theological statement on the afterlife. I think he's basically saying, go to hell. Like, no, you can't buy the blessing of God. You can't buy the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not for sale because it's a gift. (laughs) This is something that is accessed freely, offered freely by a generous and loving God. But even in these earliest moments of belief, people are trying to mediate it, trying to control it, trying to profit, trying to make it something that they can buy and sell. This is a sin, a wound in our culture that goes back many, many generations. Now, when churches are talking about money, and we all get these squicky feelings, I don't think that most churches are doing the gross prosperity, you can buy your way into heaven or you can buy God's grace thing. I don't think they're doing that. And I don't think that most churches are, are those televangelists who are really cynically exploiting people's faith for their own material gain. But there are two important things to bear in mind when we talk about money and the church. One, the wound in our communities caused by the prosperity gospel, caused by these televangelists and this exploitation, is so profound that that hurt can come up anytime we talk about church and money, even if we're doing it in a faithful way. So, like, if those feelings are coming up that, like, 
you know, you're just trying to take from me or the church is always exploiting people and being hypocritical with their money. Like, that makes sense because we have a wound of the church abusing that power that runs so deep that it's going to come up at some level for a lot of people anytime we talk about it at all. And two, even in the spaces, the churches, the religious communities that are not abusing that conversation in that way, without a conversation about systemic oppression, without a conversation about capitalism and economic exploitation, any conversation about giving and generosity can be wounding. Any conversation that urges folks to give generously, that does not acknowledge that we are all experiencing different levels of privilege or oppression within an economic system that exploits and takes, can be wounding. Because we talk about it as though it's an individual choice towards generosity, which it is, but never, never outside of a system where some are wounded differently than others. And that is what we are here to talk about today. So we actually talk about money a lot here at Zao, and we do that because Jesus talks about money a lot. In the churches, we like to spiritualize it a lot, but Jesus is most literally using a lot of examples around wage labor and workers' rights, around taxes and tithing, around how to show your faith to the church. There is a critique of hoarding, and of scarcity, this idea, these parables that were told about those who store up their treasures here on earth. Again, we spiritualize that, store up your treasures in heaven. We talk about, you know, all these things in really abstract terms, but Jesus was literally saying, hey, don't fill an entire silo full of grain when other people could be eating it. And so we have this idea that hoarding is ungospel. We have the commandment to ask for our daily bread, to be present to the resources that are with us, to offer ourselves to one another. Jesus talks about a theology of abundance, a way that things could be different. These are the loaves and fishes. This is the multiplication of everyone giving what they have, everyone relying on one another, giving what they need, and finding that there's more than enough for all. That the opposite of hoarding and scarcity is generosity and abundance. And that it is actually generosity and abundance that leads us all to have enough where no one is need because everything is held in common. Right? But that is not the way of so many institutions of this world. That's not the way of empire. That's not the way of systems of power and domination. That was not the way of the temple system that Jesus was in at that time. And so Jesus also talks nonstop about the abuses of a religious power that weren't promoting a theology of abundance and generosity, but were taking and taking and taking, especially from the most vulnerable, exploiting the poor. Now, in the church, we don't have, like, an outside funding source. <laughs> so just to be fully transparent about how money works here, how we try and live into that theology of abundance, is that we don't have outside sources, permanent outside sources. We had from our denomination, the United Methodists, we got some seed money. It's never covered our entire budget, um, and it gets less and less every year. This year, they say, is the last. Who knows? But it's never covered all of our costs. And in fact, the vast, vast, vast majority of how we do anything here at Zao is because we, as Zao, all collectively pool our resources to make it happen. So when we turn the lights on, 
when we run our tech to be live online and accessible to folks who are not local or not able to be here in person. When we turn on the boiler in the winter because it gets real cold in Wisconsin. When we give out first aid and supplies to protesters in the streets chanting Black Lives Matter. When we provide financial assistance to community members struggling to make ends meet. When I show up here six days a week to work for this community rather than relying on some other job for a paycheck. We do all of those things because we pitch in. And collectively, we've decided to throw in together on those projects. And we have enough to do it all. And the gifts that each of you give to one another, because it's a gift to each other, right? It's not a gift to Zao. Like, what is Zao? Zao is you all. So the gifts that you give to one another to make that happen are enough, are enough to do that. And if enough of us stopped doing that, said, we don't believe in this anymore, this isn't working the way that we think it should, et cetera, Zao would cease to exist. It is a common and ongoing collective agreement. And it does exist because enough of us have said we want to invest our time. We want to invest our money. We want to invest our passions in building this thing together that we call Zao and building a collective community into making it work. And that is collective generosity. That is abundance in action. That is beautiful and it is holy. I believe that is how it is supposed to work. But there are religious institutions who have gotten that idea twisted over and over and over for their own benefit. It's something that we have to bear in mind here. It's something that we need to be held accountable to all the time is the ways, the pitfalls of institutionalizing giving and having expectations start to look more and more and more like empire. And that brings us to today's text because Jesus, as I mentioned, will not shut up about the economic exploitation of the religious institutions of his day. And we have to understand what's leading up to this conversation. So we're in Mark 12 right now, but in Mark 11, Jesus had just come into Jerusalem, this big public display. Last week we talked about coming out and what it means to boldly come out and be yourself, proclaim who you are at every level, including politically. And so Jesus is putting on this like big political drama. And in Mark 11, he does a little bit of uh, light vandalism and rioting. Have you ever heard of Jesus flipping tables? Again, it's a thing we like to spiritualize and kind of paper over and pretend that it's not starting a riot in a public square. But, you know, if it were a car he was flipping, we would, we would know how to place that. So we are seeing Jesus have this really public exchange with religious leaders, causing property destruction in a meaningful way, and talking about the money changers. Now, this is about extracting profit from the temple offerings. And Jesus says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Cameron mentioned the house of God. The house of God is supposed to be any place where the people of God gather. And that is supposed to provide a meaningful sense of rooting and grounding and access to God. The house of God, the house of prayer, is a place of connection to the divine. And in that same way that in Acts, 
The Holy Spirit is given freely, but there are those who would like to material, like get material profit from it, who would like to capitalize off of it, who would like to turn it into something that can be bought and sold. This had happened in the temple. It's supposed to be a place to come and receive presence of God and community freely. And yet, in his day, the temple had twisted itself into a system of economic exploitation, extracting money from the poor as they bought the sacrifices they were legally required to offer to be in that space and to connect to God. Now, Jesus called the temple a den of thieves. And we think of it as though like the thieving was taking place there, right? You go into the temple and you get stolen from. But Borg and Crossan, who wrote a great book, several great books, one of which I'm referring to is called The Last Week, they argue that the den is not where the thieving takes place. The den is where the thieves return to. The den is the home, the safety place of those who are thieving from others. So if the temple is the den of thieves, then the temple priests and the religious system is the one doing the stealing. Now if house of prayer is supposed to be connection of God, then the den of thieves is the retreat and shelter for those who are stealing from the poor. And this is a critique of the sacrificial system of that day. And I think when we think back to like the ancient temple sacrifice system, I think a lot of us kind of for cultural reasons get caught up on like, ooh, killing animals, right? And that's like a really big idea. Now, we get into that in other conversations in other spaces about how that was really mostly like community barbecue, not like killing for the sake of killing. It was saying, hey, bring your fatted calf, we're gonna cook out. But the idea behind that, the intention of the sacrificial system was that you brought your lamb, your calf, your doves, you brought uh, your grains, your spices, so that it's like a massive potluck. And then everyone gets to partake. It's the same thing that we experience at the communion table, that we all come together around a meal, around provision for all. This is the beautiful, holy truth of God's economy and provision for all right there, saying, hey, everybody bring what you got. And we'll feast together because there's more than enough. So what happened? What happened? Well, in that particular iteration of human institution, that temple system had been abused. And the people who were in power in that moment had really started to hammer on people about what they were required to bring in order to gain entry to that holy communal potluck. And in addition to having to offer more than they actually had because they were being exploited systematically, they also then were hooking up with with money changers who were profiting off of people getting the things that they were required to buy in order to be there. And so when all of that became codified into law and then profited on by others and then abused by the temple system, the temple, the priests, the religious elites who already had more than their fair share, who were hoarding, they got more and more and more. They demanded more and more and more in the name of God. Enter this story, the widow's might, in Mark 12, the next chapter. Now, I promise... (laughs) I did not pick this text because it was November. Um, We are currently going through the book of Mark uh, using a queer commentary. 
So queer folks, queer theologians and leaders have taken a look at each book, uh, or each chapter of the book of Mark, and we're going through it systematically. And this is the first week in November, we came across this and an analysis of the widow's gift. But it is really common to preach this text in November. And my guess is that all around the country, this story will be told this month. And it will be told in this really kind of loving way to say, wow, look at this widow. She had so little and she gave so much. She will be held up as the picture of generosity. We will say wonderful things about how there is no gift too small and a generous spirit is more than enough and giving what you have is beautiful and holy. And that is all true. That is all true. But I would like you to think for a second about a different story that we tell in this country, one that we're starting to rethink. It's called The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. This is a story of a boy and a tree, the tree who kept giving, who kept changing itself, offering itself over and over to show love to the boy until it was nothing but a stump. And that is, that's it, that's the whole story. Just like how great he used all of me till I was dead. <laughs> now, the reason I can so flippantly analyze that story this way now is because we've been having a conversation about it. This is a story that I was told as a kid and I thought was beautiful. And there is beauty there. There is beauty in generosity. But we are starting to re-examine the stories we tell, the stories that may be toxic, the t stories that promote bad boundaries, harm and exploitation, that focus on generosity to the point of ignoring the, the total exploitation and giving away of oneself. So, was the gospel guilty of telling a giving tree story? I don't think so. I think interpreters did that. I think that we twisted it. And it benefits the religious authorities to do so. And I'm not saying that that's like a nefarious thing. I'm not saying anyone's plotting about it. Or even that there isn't truth in that telling. I think that there are a lot of churches who are not exploiting this, this story on purpose. I think that there are a lot of churches that are using it in good faith to tell different true things, right? They are, they are preaching to be inspired to give generously in the ways of abundance. There are others who will use this story to proclaim that the spirit of generosity is what has the most worth, that a large gift given from excess is no more powerful than a small gift given from a generous risk-taking faith. And this is a truth that we talk about. It's an echo of the loaves and fishes. That whatever you have to give is enough. That is true. It is not you that gives alone. But that when we give together, when we give collectively in faith and hope and abundance, there's more than enough for all. Your pennies matter. That is a true thing. And people are using this story to tell that truth. Your gift is never too small. Those things are true and beautiful and powerful but I don't think that's the intention of this story. I don't think that's the intention of the author of Mark. And I'll give you the key to understanding why that's probably not the intention. That key is context. When it comes to the Bible, that's pretty much always the key. <laughs> context. 
And, and I want you to know what comes before and after. When, Mark is, when the author of Mark is choosing to tell you this story about what the widow did, he's also choosing to tell you something else before and something else after. And when we treat these things as separate, we just take out a couple of verses at a time, and we just treat them as though they, they come, you know, from thin air, it can be really easy to miss the project of the author, what they're trying to lay out. So I want to read to you again. We read it already, but I want to read you again what comes immediately before this story. As Jesus was teaching, he said, watch out for the legal experts, religious authorities. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes and who show off when they say long prayers. They will be judged most, most harshly. That's what comes immediately before. These folks are cheating widows out of their homes. And what comes afterward, after this widow gives everything she has to the temple, the temple who has extracted too much. Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry, it says, as Jesus left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, do you see those enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Now, there are many people who will say Jesus is talking about himself here. The temple will be destroyed and rebuilt. Jesus is the temple. But Jesus is God, so he can talk about two things at once. <laughs> Jesus is talking about himself. That's true. There's holy truth to that. But Jesus is also talking about the temple system. Jesus is saying the way things are has to be taken down stone by stone. The economic exploitation that holds up the access to God must be destroyed and this is also experienced in Jesus' actual moment of death because the temple, with its gates and barriers, it was like, like a layer cake of, of gatekeeping to, G, to God, right? You had, some people were allowed in the first room, and then other people were allowed in the second, and an even smaller group, and an even smaller until you got to the final room, the Holy of Holies, where God was said to actually be. And even there, there was a veil, there was a veil. Access to God was mediated by the people in power. So what happens in the moment of Jesus' death? That veil, on its own, tears in two. The temple will be destroyed. The sacrificial system was set up, was intended to be a way to come together, to live generously, to be a community providing for all so that everyone had enough. But it has become a system of exploitation. It has become a system of profit where people don't have enough and even then are asked to give more. That will be torn stone from stone. The temple will be destroyed and in its place, open, loving, free access to God. God says, I'll try again. I'll give you something new to work with. Try not to buy and sell it this time. And yet here we are. So, when we talk about this text, we have to understand what comes before and after and what story the author is trying to tell. And the final key actually comes from the story itself. It is what Jesus says about the widow's gift. Jesus said, all of them are giving out of their spare change, which is to say, they have more than they need. 
They're not taking any risk by giving. But she, from her hopeless poverty, hopeless poverty, why should anyone in the community of God be experiencing hopeless poverty? That in and itself is an indictment. This system was created so that all may have hope, so that all may have enough. So for someone in the temple at all to be experiencing hopeless poverty is a huge indictment of the way that system has been twisted and abused and is no longer serving the purpose that God intended for it. She in her hopeless poverty is given every, giving everything she has, even what she needs to live on. We can't think that that's a good idea. We can't think that her giving everything she needs to live on is a good idea, and yet that is what has been asked of her over and over and over again. So what is happening here? Well, our queer guide for this conversation, the person who offered commentary for Mark chapter 12, is Reverend Billy Klutz, who is a pastor and podcaster and a queer man. And he says, reading this as a queer person, I see it as performance art. I see it as political theater. I see it as a calling out of these systems of exploitation. Just a little tiny bit more context because there's never enough. Before the part we read today twice, one of those same legal experts comes up to Jesus and says, what's the most important law? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is elucidating the point of the scriptures of the Torah of the law and saying the reason that we are given these instructions is so that we might use them to love and to love as though we are all at stake. We talk about that here in terms of solidarity. No one is free until we are all free. I cannot love myself without loving my neighbor and seeing how my neighbor's well-being and mine are tied together inextricably. And so, I cannot be well when one of my kin is experiencing hopeless poverty. No one can. And those riches that are hoarded, they will rot. They are wounding our community. And so nothing can be made right until everyone has enough. Love God, love neighbor love self, these things are all parts of the same coin. Billy writes, the chapter that has focused on the injustice of the current form of governance, the power of money and taxation, and the situation of widows, closes with a powerful performance by a survivor of that system. In doing so, our gospel writer reminds us that those damaged by systems of injustice are not just objects of debate, but subjects and actors in their own right. How often does the church talk about the poor as if we aren't a collective that embodies that experience? How often do we talk about these things as though they are just ideas and not lives and people and relationships? The prophets, the prophets had like a refrain talking about the obligation that the community had to the foreigner, that is to say the immigrant, the widow, 
the orphan, and the poor. People who were experiencing exploitation and marginalization across communities needed to be centered. And yet those same religious leaders who would spew that would then turn around and demand that the widow herself, that the orphan themselves, contribute even to the point of having nothing to live on. And debating that, it's not just a theory. It's about what happens to real people. Klutz goes on and says, this widow makes her protest in one final offering to the temple system. Final, because she has nothing to live. The implication is that she's going to die. Jesus tells us that those in power devour widows' houses. And that he will make, and then he makes sure we notice one widow's protest against the status quo. Jesus tells us that as she has contributed everything she had, all she had to live on, and we, as witness of this performance art, are asked to decide if that's positive or negative. Jesus asks us to pay attention to the woman's giving, to be made uncomfortable by what we are seeing. And this is the point of a lot of performance art and political theater, to expose what is, to make us uncomfortable with it, to spur us to action, to hold systems accountable and say this cannot go on. This feels wrong. What is community for if not the provision of needs? The prophets say the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the poor. The temple was meant to care for her. So why are they asking her to give everything? What good is a gift that takes from the very one meant to receive? Spiritual generosity is about all of us pitching in so that everyone has enough to live on, not pressuring people to give until they have literally nothing left. And when we collect money, it is so that we can use it for one another. If we ever lose sight of that, as the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, we are participating in a system of empire and abuse. The widow gives her gift to shine a spotlight. And Reverend Billy Klutz summarizes his experience of her art in this way. Her home was devoured so quietly, taken with subtle rules, silent excuses, muted gestures. Her security was tacitly taken as well. Blame falls in falls hushed in such a large system, or should I say, sanctuary. And maybe the widow did scream over the banquet din for her home, her hunger, her humanity. But that day, someone heard her. That day, the noise of her protest, her challenge, her gift, was loud enough to be noticed. That day, she cashed out all that she had to live on from the system that had taken all her life, enough of the long prayers that brought no respite, enough of the showy offerings, profits from her own home's destruction. There's not enough, a young girl thought she heard someone say, over the ringing of copper metal. We can honor the widow's gift by moving out of our discomfort to expose the predatory economics of capitalism and the ways that religious institutions are particularly guilty of stealing from the poor. And we honor the widow's gift by doing better, 
by contributing ourselves to a different system, one that actually does provide enough for all in a theology of abundance, where, yes, everyone's gift matters, no matter how small, but that our gifts are meant to destroy systems of oppression, not prop them up. That the church cannot proclaim the prophets and demand every last penny from the widow. Luckily, we are the church. So we get to decide how we talk about money, how we use money. We get to decide if our money goes to private jets or to bail funds. We get to decide if people are pressured to give or if we're creating a community where no one goes without because we're all chipping in. We get to decide if we're trying to buy God's affections and sell it, or if we're trying to create a collective and collectively accountable economy of abundance. I know what I long for, but this is the thing. Collective generosity, providing enough so that no one is asked to give too much, it only works when we all do it. And when we all hold it accountable, how can we respond to the widow by being different, by having a prophetic imagination, by understanding a theology and economy of abundance, by building a community where no one goes without? How can we center our bail fund, our mutual aid? How can we provide enough for one another so we can do the incredible things we are called to do? How can we give based on the risks and context of our own life, never, never neglecting the conversation about the systems of empire and domination that are hurting some a lot more than others. How can we embody the gospel? We can be inspired by the widow, but rather than holding her up as a one-dimensional saint, let us honor her performance art and do better by her. Will you pray with me? God, you, you like to challenge. Nothing is simple in your world. You made it creative and messy and interesting. And God, it is hard. God, help us to understand the complex nature of community. Help us to understand generosity and the predatory practices of the abuse of generosity. Help us to give with confidence and hold one another accountable. Help us to have hope in a different kind of world. Help us to throw in together and dismantle those systems that are using the same language, the same stories, to do something evil. God, we are a mix of sinner and saint, each of us, all of us. Please help us to be more like you. Please help us to do better more often than we do worse. Please help us to embody the hope of asking and providing one another our daily bread. In your name we pray. Amen.